1: Hello, you're listening to Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network, the show where you call in, hopefully, with your cooking-related questions, technology-related or not. Um, The number to call into the studio here is 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. I'm here in the studio today with Cooking Issues hammer Nastasha Lopez. Uh, and uh, we have some uh, email questions in. But before that, today's Cooking Issues is brought to you by Fairway, like no other market. They have at least three locations I know of. One uh, up in Harlem, where I used to live, uh, up where my studio was back when I did the art thing. They have a huge walk in meat, like meat. Refrigerator there Which is pretty nice uh, Great cheese section uh, And then of course The original Midtown I guess uptown Really 70 and Change Street on Broadway And one right here In Red Hook, Brooklyn Close by to where uh, Our studio is So fairway Like no other market uh, Okay So uh, Nastasha We had a couple Of questions in uh, Via email
2: Last week And this week Yep
1: Yeah So let's uh, Let's uh, take a look At take a look at some of these oh, oh yeah By the way We're here from Noon to 1245 Every Tuesday uh, Okay That's 718 497 2128. 718 497 2128. Okay, so we had a a question coming in from Richard. It says uh, Some friends and I saw miracle fruit on a TV show and ordered some powdered fruit to do a tasting experiment this weekend. Do you guys have any thoughts on this flavor inverting fruit? Have you tried it? How does it work? Yada, yada. Okay. Well, uh, yes, we, uh, we love the miracle fruit. There's a bunch of different ways you can get it. You can buy the fresh frozen berries. You can buy uh, a freeze-dried powder. And you can also dry compressed uh, tablets uh, known as like miracle fruities or whatnot. No matter how you do it, right, uh, the active principle uh, from this, the, the miracle fruit, is a, a, a protein called miraculin. And what, what miraculin does, now you're, you're talking on my memory because I haven't actually researched it in a, in a long time, but... If memory serves, what miraculin does is uh, it binds to your sour receptors and causes uh, sorry it binds to your uh, sweet receptors and causes things that taste uh, sour things that are acidic to also activate uh, your sweet uh, your sweet sensors so basically things that have acidity things that are sour taste sweet now um, the effect doesn't last forever. You want to put it in your mouth, make sure it coats, don't swallow it right away, coat your whole tongue with it. And usually, depending on how strong, how big a dose it is, how strong the one you have, it can last anywhere from like 15 minutes to half hour or so. Uh, and um, basically anything that has acidity in it is going is to be uh, modified. Um, the acidity actually doesn't go away, so the effect of when you're sucking on a lemon is that it tastes like lemonade. Typically, I mean, people like to taste all sorts of things when they do it, like vinegar and... You know, uh, a friend of ours, Clifford, who was an intern at the French Culinary with us, uh, just graduated recently. Used to do these flavor tripping parties, and he loved tasting like uh, cheap tequila. He said tasted really good, right, Nastasha? Right. Um, things like radishes, he really liked. But you know, I'm kind of an old school guy, and what happens is, is uh, I cut up like 10, 15, 20 limes, and then I just start sucking on the limes like like rapid fire because I can't get enough until my lips are bleeding from the acid, and your stomach feels like it's about to drop out. Because uh, remember. It doesn't actually take the acid away so it's still eating away your enamel and your lips and your stomach it's just you, you feel compelled to to kind of keep eating them uh what else does clifford really like he we, liked we um, did vinegar vi- yeah vinegar i mentioned yeah, mentioned that hot peppers he liked uh, like uh, jalapeno pepper said did something but you know really just get an array of things that have any sort of acidity to them and then uh, just start pounding them i mean that's basically my recommendation um Right? No. What do you mean, no? Oh, you, you don't need all the acid. Well, you know, Nastasha, her iron, uh, you know, constitution is not as iron as mine. So uh, anyway, so yes, we highly recommend the uh, Miracle Fruit. And if you want to do it under controlled uh, you know, circumstances, come to the Harold McGee lecture series at the French Culinary, where we, we not only eat Miracle Fruit, we also eat something called Gymnemic Acid the sugar destroyer which uh, what happens is tastes awful tastes like you're uh, like you're licking the uh, bottom of a rabbit's cage or something it's, it's completely awful tasting but that's not the point the point is it erases your sense of sweet so anything that has sugar in it all of a sudden the sugar is completely wiped out but everything else stays the same and it's we do you know we do the miracle fruit which is fun and then we do the genemic acid which is very very instructive because it allows you to taste uh, all kinds of products that you don't think of as being sweet and then um, basically seeing what happens when you actually do erase all sweetness from it so um strawberries i guess what you do think of a sweet become preposterously acidic without uh w- w- when the sense of sweet is knocked out so um these are things you can come experience live with harold mcgee at the uh harold mcgee lecture series i don't know where the next one is it's it october october november something like that you know go to the uh, french culinary website okay uh thank you richard for that question um okay So we have a question in from Julia that says uh, she's a a recent grad student. uh, Grad student recently married and is beginning to invest in cookware that she wants to last basically forever. Uh, And she wants to get a Dutch oven. I have a Dutch oven. I love my Dutch oven. Uh, She says that, you know, she looked at Staub and also at uh, the uh, Le Creuset and she doesn't like the plastic knob on the Le Creuset. And she's like, why, why did, why the hell do they use a plastic knob? Well, that plastic knob uh, is true. It's not, I mean, it's he, you can put it in the oven, that plastic, but it. Do, I mean, I'll tell you from experience, that knob does chip. Here's the good news. You can unscrew that knob and put kind of any knob uh, you want on it. Um, I don't really know uh, of the quality difference between La Crusade and Staub. Uh, I think they're both, uh, I mean, I'm, someone's going to call in and tell me I'm a jerk for saying this. I've, I haven't used the Staub a lot, but I bet they're probably fundamentally similar. Both of those Dutch ovens are enameled on the inside, so you have an enameled surface. You can also buy... Dutch Ovens that aren't enameled, that are standard cast iron, um, they're, you know, the use of that's going to be a little different. You want to be careful with your enamel cast iron that you don't get it too, 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 too hot over an open flame because you can get popping of the enamel. Uh, I've ha- I've never had that happen to me, but I've had people report in. If you go to the Cooking Issues website and look at our um, cat, we have a, a post on cast iron uh, cookware and basically the heat properties of cast iron and you know kind of the myth. There's a lot of myths around what cast iron can and can't do and and you know why it's good and why it's not. And, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time on that, on that trying, to, trying to think about that uh, post. In fact, I was supposed to write it for somebody, for a, for another magazine, and they, they said it was too boring and technical. But anyway, but I still recommend you go look at it. Uh, and, and there's a bunch of people who commented in that post uh, on um, enameled cast iron specifically, and I believe Dutch, oven, uh, Dutch Ovens and uh, La Crusade. So uh, if you go to that post, you can check it out on www cookingissues.com and and by the way I don't know why they use La Crusade on the Food Network uh, instead of Staub I I guarantee you La Crusade gave them that stuff for free so I mean I wouldn't I mean I have La Crusade at home and I purchased it but (laughs) I wouldn't take the fact that it's on the Food Network as any indication of its quality versus uh, Staub Um, anyway uh, thank you Julia I hope that answers uh, your question and then uh, this one, I'm I'm literally just reading for the first time, so I'm not even gonna. I don't even have the time to think about it. So you're gonna hear my first cuff reaction. It comes from Pete Stapleton in Detroit and uh, says, "I know this must soo- uh, sound like a stupid question, but w- there's no there's no stupid questions. Uh, uh, that's what they always used to tell me before I asked a stupid question. Uh, <laughs> I would love to hear Dave's advice for cooking pasta. What temperature is best? Does it matter if you boil quickly then reduce heat, adding salt, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay, uh, I'm a novice who loves listening to the show. Thank you very much. I love you listening to the. The show uh, and would like to uh, answer some questions. Okay, now here's the thing: there are uh, so a friend, of, friend of ours, friend of the school, friend of the show, Cesare Casella uh, is a you know renowned Italian chef uh, from Tuscany here in the city. Just goes to show you how far afield from normal pasta cooking that you can go if you want to. Man sometimes cooks his pasta like a risotto. Now don't do this with something like that's you know long, but like thinner things that you can stir around. He'll literally like uh, I, th- I think he do- he he uh, fries it a little bit first, right? Like a risotto, right, mustache yeah, yeah. yeah, fries it a little bit first in water uh, in, uh, in oil, just like a risotto. Uh, you know sautés, and then just starts adding liquid slowly, and it is absorbing liquid, and then basically you keep all the starches then that are released, and it becomes like a creamy, creamy, uh, creamy pasta. You're not losing all the starch to the cooking water. So if you want a starchy risotto-like thing, you can cook pasta that way. That just shows how far a field you can go from normal pasta cooking, uh, and still get a good result. The tricks with pasta are this: one, yes, salt your water. Why? Not because it's going to raise the temperature. By the way, boiling water is probably the easiest temperature. I don't think it's really crucial, but just you know, boiling water is fine. Um, the only time you don't want to go super boiling is when you're doing something delicate like a ravioli. It's going to get the crap beat out of it in the thing. And it's going to explode. Then you want to then you want to lower the temperature of your of your water a little bit just so it's not rolling around. You want to use salt for flavor. Uh, you know the inside of pasta has relatively uh, low salt, low flavor. I mean, you know. Don't yell at me for that. But anyway, like uh, add salt uh, mainly for flavor. It doesn't increase the temperature enough for it to uh, make a difference. Um, the other thing is you're going to want to pull your pasta a little bit in, in advance uh, just because uh, hopefully when you're adding it to a sauce, it's going to integrate some of that sauce into the pasta and finish off cooking. So you're going to want to pull it uh, a little bit early and, and then toss it. Uh, sometimes if you have a really thin sauce, you could toss it uh, you know, over the heat a little bit and the pasta is going to absorb. Absorb some of that sauce uh, when it's when it's finishing. There's lots and lots to say uh, about uh, pasta and, and cooking. Um you know, I would get a higher, a higher quality pasta is also, also going to help. A pasta that's gone through uh, a really rough dye, holds on to sauce, better bronze dye. So, you know, go, I would go, go that way. But I encourage you to ask more questions, and I will think longer and more specifically about your pasta questions. But I hope I've said something of interest to you, Pete. Please keep listening, and thank you for your question. Oh, we have some callers on the line. Uh, who do we have? Hello. Hello. Oh. <laughs> Hi.
3: How you doing? Yeah, my name's Ernesto. I'm uh, calling in from Boston.
1: Hey, how you doing, Ernesto? Uh,
3: the the topic you were just sc- discussing. Uh, I also uh, uh, check out uh, the uh, Ideas and Food website pretty constantly. Your your website's awesome. I'm constantly on it. And there's the uh, the whole pre soak dry method that they've been trying.
1: Of, and of I've pasta? been
3: doing it yeah, with yeah. dry pasta where you pre soaks where you pre soak it before you actually cook it to reduce the cooking time. Right. Now, I've been doing the trial and error, and sometimes it gets a little too over soaked. Is there something? Have you ever experimented with this at all and have like more of a guideline or time kind of
1: thing for me? No, now I, now I feel bad. I have not experimented with this. Nastasha, has uh, Cesare ever experimented with this? No. No, no. I mean, look, I mean, like, this is the kind of thing that sounds like a great technique. It's not so much, for me, it wouldn't be so much at, uh, I mean, time, because I mean, bo- pasta bowl is pretty darn quick, but. It is a big energy savings, so you know, and, and big energy in terms of your, uh, you know, your heating bill, I mean your your air conditioning bill in the summer when you're boiling water. Is it mainly for energy savings, or do they want to do it for time savings?
3: Well, actually, uh, 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 Alex from uh, Ideas and he infuses flavors into it. Where he did it, where he did it with uh, mozzarella water to right. actually add flavor to the pasta before. But see, I have tried it and I have gone a little too far, and it seemed like the pasta was a little too soggy. It loses kind of like that al dente thing. Huh. Because yeah. you reduce the cooking time to maybe like two minutes, but the actual soak time, you know, I, I guess as far as I've tried it with like uh, spaghetti and 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 pasta like that, but it seems like it works better with lo- thicker cut pastas.
1: Right. I mean, I, because I c- yeah. go yeah, like the
3: thinner, it just gets too soggy, and I'm I'm just trying to gauge the time and wondering if you knew a kind of like a, a, a basic um, minimum time that you might need to with different sizes pasta. Or maybe that'd be something you guys can do for uh, the, the Cooking Issues website. Too. Yeah. I mean,
1: I'll definitely check out. I'll check out Alex's and uh, Aki's thing and see what see what they're doing with. It. I mean, I mean, I've cooked pasta in flavored stuff. I guess the advantage of soaking is it doesn't require quite as much. But they, one of the issues is you're going to get a lot of leaching of flavor out when you do boil it back in a large quantity of water. I mean, that's something you might want to do risotto style, the way Cesare does, um, unless you really don't want that creamy starchiness. But I'm definitely. I'll definitely check that out, and um, maybe we'll put something in the forums on it, right, Natasha? Yeah. Nastasha? Yeah. Anyway, anyway, thanks a lot for for your question. It's definitely a lot to think about with pasta this morning. So, yeah. thank you. Okay, we have someone else. No, yeah. No. It's,
3: uh, <clears throat> hi, it's uh it's ship from New York City. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. I've got a, a question about uh, meat glue. I, well, I kind of test it out, but I don't necessarily want to invest in a two pound you know two pound bag of it. Do you, is there any you know local sources?
1: so that we can an, yeah. get something
3: that's a little more reasonable?
1: That's an excellent question. What do they charge now for a kilo? Uh, like
3: eighty-six, eighty-eight,
1: yeah. something like that. Um, this is something I need to in- investigate. It used to be that uh, you could call up... Uh, Bob Tanay, who's the local Agenomoto. By the way, uh, for those of you that don't know what's going on, people who aren't kind of like, you know, tech, tech people, meat glue is an enzyme, transglutaminase, that you can use to bind any two proteins together. It's, uh, it's derived from a soil enzyme. It's totally natural. It's destroyed by cooking. Uh, there's, no known, um, there's no known problems with it. I've read several, I've read like six 700 pages on the safety of transglutaminase. It's in your body right now. It's like part of the thing that helps your skin get created. It's part of the stuff that helps blood clot. Uh, um, this particular one is uh, unique in that it doesn't require calcium. It's very easy to use. You just sprinkle the powder onto meats. You put two, two meats together, and they and they stick together after about four hours. And you can glue anything, basically cow, donkey, chicken, moose, whatever. You can glue it all together. And it, it it's not just for special effects. It really helps you make really nice portions that cook very consistently. It's very uh, consistently very good. The problem is is that you have to invest in a uh, a kilo of it, and then uh, you have to keep it in the freezer. Otherwise, it goes bad. It does last a long time in the Freezer. It used to be when you called Bob Tanay from the Gina Moto, who makes makes the stuff. He's the New York C- City rep for it. That you could um, um, get a sample before you invested. It, did they not do that anymore?
3: Uh, you know, I, I I've been trying to get get a hold of him. I haven't been able to to reach out for him. But I'll I'll you know, try again. See if I can get a sample or something that's a little more.
1: Yeah, okay, yeah, the sample pack, they usually send you one sample pack, they used to, I mean, the the chef, uh, the the desire for it among chefs has really increased, and so it's not as easy, maybe, I don't know, I haven't tried in a long time, I'll tell you this, though, you know, another way to do it, I don't think it's something, because we don't buy that stuff in bulk, Moustache, so we don't, like, it's not, we could, could, it's possible that we could uh, repack it, because I know, but I don't know that they want us to repack it, do you know what I mean, whereas, like, uh, with Sanctuary, I think they only sell it by the kilo as well, and uh, there's... Land used to carry it here in New York, and I think they only sell it by the kilo. You're not going to be disappointed. Let me put it that way. It's worth the <laughs> 80 bucks. You're not going to be disappointed. It's like one of the great products in the world, but you want to keep it in your freezer uh, because what happens is, is if there's any moisture, the, uh, the enzyme basically gets ruined, and then you're out, um, you're out the product. You know. So, uh, but it, you're, you're not going to be sorry getting it, but try to get, try to get a sample if you can. Uh, and okay. uh, th- Thanks so much for your question. We have to go to our first break.
3: Alright, thanks
2: a lot. Thanks. Bye. Oh, how you feel, brother? Feeling good. You feel good? Feeling really good. It's been so much bone, brother. How you feel, man? I feel all right. I'll call your name, I don't want no people to know you're in here. How you feel, brother?
1: We're listening to Cooking Issues, and this is Dave Arnold. Uh, call in with all your cooking related questions to 718 497 2128. That's 718 497 2128. So uh, while we're waiting, see if we get another caller in, uh, let's take some more email questions. So um, we have, uh, um, let's see, who's the name? Isaac Miller writes in from San Francisco uh, saying he, he wants to talk about ice, right? And so he, he says there's a lot, he's, it's aggravated there's so many pseudoscientific uh, proclamations about how ice works uh, and says he thinks he heard me say that large ice cubes will keep drinks colder with less, less dilution than smaller ice. Heaven forfend. I have never... Uh, if I ever said anything that gave the impression that I said that, uh, you know, please expunge it from all sorts of records because that is clearly not the case. Here, let's, let's go through this a little bit. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into my feelings on ice for just a second. Uh, okay. The fundamental rule of all cocktails. This is the fundamental rule of all cocktails. Remember, uh, there is no... Remember, bar ice, ice in a bar, is at zero degrees Celsius. If you don't believe me, come to the lab. We'll run the test. But once you take it out of the freezer within 20 minutes or so, all that ice is at zero degrees. Any deviation it is uh, has from zero degrees is not going to affect the temperature of your final drink that much for reasons that are too complicated to go into now. But, uh, I mean, if you take ice directly out of the freezer. Obviously, it will make a drink colder eventually if you shake, not necessarily if you stir. Very long story. Anyway, uh, so assuming that the ice in your bar is at zero degrees Celsius, uh, here is the fundamental law. This is the law, right? Uh, There is no chilling other than through dilution, because the only way the ice can chill is through melting. And there is no dilution without chilling, because it requires energy uh, to melt the ice. So that ice has to chill when it is melting. So there's basically a one-to-one relationship. So in the short term, when you're stirring or mixing a drink, you're not losing that much energy to the environment around it uh there's pretty much you know uh, the temperature and the uh and, and the dilution the chilling and the dilution are linked together now it doesn't matter then uh what size the ice cube is or or or, any, or, or anything really uh and the big ice cubes are definitely no more colder ice is ice i mean for a gram per gram uh ice at the same temperature all stores the same amount of uh energy now uh where where do things deviate uh the greater the surface area something has i big ice has a low surface area to volume ratio so a big chunk of ice is less efficient at chilling because it has less surface area and all the melting and chilling happens at the surface right so uh big ice is going to be less efficient so when you're stirring with big big ice cubes it takes longer to get down to the temperature that you want um and consequently, you're also losing more to the environment, probably, although these, these effects are negligible. Uh, smaller ice is going to chill relatively uh, faster because it's going to have greater surface area. Now, the other problem is, is that ice at zero has water on its surface, and the greater the amount of surface area, the more entrained water, the more water is present on the surface of your ice, right? Therefore, smaller ice is going to dilute your drink more because it has more entrained water on it. If you actually put your ice in a salad spinner, or in a centrifuge, should you have one, it's not really practical, I'm just saying, uh, then you I mean, really, just shake your ice out before you use it you get all the extra water off, the differences in dilution are going to be negligible and we've done this through experiment, experiment, experiment and 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 the differences are negligible In a stirred drink The speed at which you can get something to chill down with small ice means that you actually will dilute your drink more and it will get colder with small ice simply because you're not stirring long enough typically, which could take up to a minute with a large chunk of ice, to get your drink down to temperature. Um, So – Ice, ice from a from a you know physics standpoint, ice is ice, and then the question is how much water is there on the surface, and what is the um, and and then you know what, what is the uh, how much water is on the surface and what's your surface area? Those are the two important parameters, and then how effective are you? Shaking tends to be so effective that. The ice really doesn't matter so much. Stirring, it makes more of a difference. But I have not, because of my extreme laziness, done the post from Tales of the Cocktail where we're going to discuss ice and stirring uh, in great detail the same way we did shaking last year. Uh, but I, I hope this answers your question. And uh, you know, please put a comment on the blog and we'll talk, we'll talk more about it. Um, okay. Let me see. Uh, next question from uh, Richard. Oh, no. We already did this one. We did the Miracle Fruit. Hmm. 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 Have I answered all the questions? I
0: don't
1: think so. Well, I might be missing a question, yeah. which, which case we'll, keep, we'll come back to. But uh, but I have some, some good news for eBay wins for myself. Check this out. So uh, you might know, uh, list, li- you know, readers of the blog might know that we have several centrifuges over at the French Culinary that I use, and I use them primarily for uh, centrifuge is something that s- spins, and with spinning it separates things based on density. And uh, what, is, what what can I do with that? Well, we can make really delicious nut oils, like really I mean super delicious fresh fresh nut oils. We can make we uh, we take cured olives and we make an olive oil from it that I think is delicious, but some people think is is uh, nasty, but I find it delicious. I like it. Yeah, and then uh, and she doesn't like anything. so That's, <laughs> a, that's a ringing endorsement. Uh, uh, but you know, recently what we've been doing is we have a technique where we add an enzyme, we blend fruit, and then we clarify, we make uh, fruit juice. And that's mainly what we're doing with it now. We're making gallons and gallons of different kinds of fruit juices every day. But strawberry juice, peach juice, apricot juice, plum juice. I mean, bang, 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 bang. Well, anyway, centrifuges are expensive. Um, there's one sweet spot in the centrifuge market, and that's uh, for, for chefs. And that's uh, what's called a three-liter benchtop, um, a three-liter benchtop uh, centrifuge. They have swinging buckets in them. They take uh, three liters, they hold three liters, uh, four 750-milliliter buckets, and they can all do roughly um, 4000 G's. Now this is the sweet spot because 4,000 G's is enough to do almost everything we want to do uh, in, the lab, in the lab, in the kitchen with the exception of clarifying lime juice but I have other techniques for that. It's relatively small, relatively inexpensive relatively safe, relatively easy to use. This is something that I think more, more chefs would get. Anyway uh, I buy one that's, uh, Juan is the model from Thermo Scientific. I buy it because these are out, the company's out of business but there's still a lot of these on the market and they're relatively inexpensive um, I just got one a refrigerated centrifuge this thing's worth probably when i say cheap it's worth probably two grand right one to two grand uh on ebay 99 bucks 99 dollars 79 dollars shipping this thing shows up right i bought it because it said uh that it wasn't working right i said it wasn't working display doesn't come on lights don't come on let me tell you something if any of you out there are uh you know what i'm talking about if you do troubleshooting on equipment if you don't listen this sounds counterintuitive uh, what you want is to plug something in and have nothing happen at all. Because what, what this means is something probably happened very early on in the system, something probably fairly easy to fix, right? Right. You, know, you don't want to hear that it powers on and the numbers come on and it spins at like one-quarter speed and then craps out halfway through. Like this kind of stuff, this is difficult to troubleshoot, right? But nothing at all happening? Bueno, right? So we order this thing. We come in. I crack the thing open. Blown fuse. Seriously, a blown fuse. So now we have for like one hundred. $79, including shipping a an almost, you know, it, relatively new considering the company went out of business, but like basically pristine refrigerated 3 liter centrifuge um, that I'm going to modify with a stroboscope so that we can take pictures of uh, things clarifying and make them look like they're standing still. It's going to be crazy. It's like seriously pimped. The, I'm going to pimp the hell out of this thing. It's going to be like a pretty cool centrifuge. Anyways, so... Um, Yeah, so it just goes to show, like with a little bit of troubleshooting and a keen eye for eBay, you know, you guys out there can get some serious, serious deals. Now, here's my other recommendation. This thing came from a blood lab, right? Which means you want to uh, clean the hell out of it. So what we did is we... We basically soak the inside of this sucker in chlorine, uh, and that's not even going to touch food that we're ever going to eat, but just chlorine the hell out of it. And then I chlorine the hell – well, I should say the interns. Cl- I didn't do i didn't do squat. You know, you anyway. Know. Yeah. So we chlorine the hell out of the buckets, right? And then we pressure cook the buckets because a pressure cooker is like a poor person's uh, autoclave. But what you want to be careful when you're pressure cooking to sterilize, you want to be really careful to make sure that all of the uh, air is out. You want to have the, the buckets actually underneath the surface of the water when you're pressure cooking because otherwise – you can have uh, air bubble trap that might not get up to temperature, and uh, at least this is what I say. I don't really know. This is what they say on the sterilizer websites. So I just make sure that the buckets are all the way underwater. We pressure cook them for like 20 minutes. Uh, they're made out of aluminum, so the you know all of the the heat goes into it and it kills whatever might possibly ail you in those things. So it came from a blood lab. Stasi, you've been drinking you've been drinking juice out of a blood lab for like a year now, all right? I mean it's like, you know, it's a question of can you clean the thing properly? Are you taking the right steps to clean it? Yes, yes, we are. Yes. Anyway. Uh, so that is the saga of our $179 uh, centrifuge worth two grand. That's making me extremely, extremely happy. You, you you know you don't know joy until you've opened up a piece of equipment and seen that really is just a blown fuse that's causing it to not, to not work properly. I feel kind of sorry for the people who didn't take the trouble to troubleshoot it, but not that sorry. Um, so it cost you $3 to fix it. You only got
2: shocked once.
1: Well, a little bit shocked. <laughs> a little bit. Not a lot shocked. No. No. But I'm glad I opened it up, actually, because uh, these centrifuges have what's called an imbalance sensor in them, so that when you're not balanced as they're spinning, because all hell breaks loose if a centrifuge isn't balanced. Uh, I mean, like, all, all hell. I mean, like, really bad. Like, makes a bad loaded washer seem like nothing. Anyway, so... Uh, uh, Anywho, the, the imbalance sensor was uh, was disconnected, so I did get to catch that. So I'm kind of glad I opened the thing up because some knucklehead had disconnected the imbalance switch. And that's not something you want to have disconnected. You just, what happens when, when, when it senses that it's not balanced, it just shuts the whole thing off right away, which stops it from uh, uh, flying apart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Here's the question. Okay. Uh, let me see. Oh, okay. well,
2: we have two minutes.
1: So. Oh, we have two, two minutes? Yeah. All right. So, well, let me see. Let's see what the... Oh, by the way, if you have any questions, call in to 718-497-2128, 718-497-2128. So uh, I'm going to probably start this question and then probably have to go to it after break. Uh, Paul, uh, Paul K. writes in and says, I'd be grateful... Uh, if you could answer my question about uh, getting meat soft He's cooking for a population for whom food, food safety is the utmost important And the meats must be very tender Okay um, And so he's saying with, with chicken he doesn't have a problem getting these characteristics Tenderness, taste and mo- moistness But he's having difficulty with turkey Everyone does Everyone does, brother and like, Unless you use low temp or sous vide And beef And because food safety issues he's hesitant to use sous vide um, You know, he wants to get them as hot as possible uh, without, without really you know, beating them to heck Okay, well here's the thing sit first, my pitch for sous vide. First of all, sous vide, I don't know where the regulations are, uh, where, where you are. I understand uh, your trepidation in using them, because if you use it improperly, um, you know, it might it might have problems. But sous vide, by the way, for those of you that don't know, is uh, is uh, where you put a, a food in a, in a bag, you seal it, you remove the oxygen, you seal it, you cook it, uh, and then, you know, you can re-therm it and, uh, and then serve it. Uh, properly done, sous vide is the safest, uh, basically the safest of all cooking techniques, and it allows you to get the, the entire thing up to temperature. So, you know, if you willing to take the time and investment to do it, I think sous vide is actually an incredibly safe way to provide very, very high-quality items. Barring that, um, you could get a, a, a combi oven that can cook at a relatively accurate temperature for something like turkey. You know, I'd want to take it to like uh, sixty-five uh, at least, and once you, sixty—not at least, but I mean, sixty-five actually at maximum for me. But sixty-five Celsius uh, is enough if you cook it long enough to kill anything in there, right? Uh, and at the same time, it's still going to be very, very moist. So if you had a combi oven, um, they're quite expensive. If you don't have space for that, we could get you could get a CVAP oven, which basically is a, like a holding oven with a Bain Marie in it. It was developed for Kentucky Fried Chicken. It holds a fairly accurate temperature, and you could cook your turkey. in uh, in, in there uh at at 60 64 to 65 i think you're going to really really like the results it's going to be extremely tender extremely juicy and extremely safe and not require any extra regulations uh we have to go to break i'm going to think a little bit about beef maybe and we'll come back with some beef uh, recommendations uh in a minute Get back! Welcome back to Cooking Issues, the show where we take on your cooking issues, most often technically related cooking issues, but not always. Uh, call in to the studio at 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. We're going to be here for at least another 15 minutes, maybe more, if you if you call with a really compelling question. Right, Nastasha? Yes, please yes. call. All right, so uh, before the last break, I was answering uh, Paul's question about how to cook meat so that they're tender and also extremely uh, safe. Uh, presumably someone who has trouble, you know, man, I don't know. Maybe like a, a you know, I don't know someone who can't chew something something needs really tender but they also really safe maybe someone immunocompromised. Old. Old. I didn't want to say it that way, Nastasha, but you know thanks for just you know saying that. Awesome, great, okay. Hope, hope we haven't offended anyone out there. So uh, anyway, so uh, we discussed turkey, which I thought should be cooked uh, probably bet- depends. Like breast meat, um, leg meat, you need to go at least sixty five uh, Celsius from a taste standpoint, not really from a safety standpoint. You can cook it lower if you cook it for a long time. You have the temperature times um, and and you know on our on our website on cooking issues you can take a look at Doug Baldwin I think also has that uh, has some safety uh, guidelines uh, on his website and his new book um, but To beef So uh, with beef um, It depends on on how you want to cook it If you don't want to cook it sous vide But you want to do low temperature Which is really the only way to guarantee You're not going to overcook the items Now if you're going to do a braise Right we can all do braises Without necessarily overcooking the meat But if you want to do something that's not a braise And you still want to remain tender You want to guarantee safety You're going to have to cook it for a fairly long time um, And you want to do lower temperature I would recommend getting something like a CVAP oven And as describing it before It was invented for Kentucky Fried Chicken to hold Kentucky Fried Chicken and basically uh, a hot box with a with a water bath in the bottom. And the water bath means that you can um, really kind of accurately control the temperature. In a regular oven, you can't accurately control the temperature because, uh, A, the, the uh, you're not getting a lot of good, unless it's convection, you're not getting a really good heat transfer. And plus, you're getting evaporative cooling. Moisture is always evaporating off the surface of your food, lowering its temperature. So it's really impossible to judge the internal temperature based on the oven's temperature uh, with, you know, regular cooking. In a CVAP, you can set the uh, humidity at 100% on the inside, and you can really, really dial in exactly the internal temperature, and really uh, make sure that something is cooked all the way through, and yet is still going to remain juicy. So I'd look at that, but I would really also look into g- doing low temperature work with a circulator and, and sous vide, uh, because I, you know, I think that once you make the leap. Uh, into sous vide the, the fantastic thing about sous vide is is that there's very little potential for recontamination of a product and so you can have products that uh, are cooked and kept in really good shape and are very very safe uh, I mean there really is no safer way to do it other you know than sous vide so long as it's done properly I mean um, you know the, the dangers obviously with you know with sous vide is that you don't uh, you don 't thermally process properly, and that you you might leave bacteria in or you might not refrigerate it properly, and you might get things growing in the bag like botulism, but you know in a properly treated product that 's just not that 's not going to happen if you just treat treat the food properly. So, I, uh, Paul, I hope that answered your question. And now uh, maybe we'll talk about some stuff that we're, we're working on uh, at the school, huh? Yes. So uh, we've been working on water. So for those of you that haven't read uh, Fix the Pumps, Fix the Pumps is a book by uh, uh, Darcy uh, O'Neill. It's uh, basically saying, uh, you know, we should take a look at um, the soda fountain. So the soda fountain was uh, you know, phenomenon in, uh, in U.S. Uh, back in the day. Uh, You know, where you would go And they would make sodas for you But it was a lot more than that It had a lot There was a lot going on A lot of recipes A lot of artistry A lot of X, Y, and Z So go check out the books uh, Fix the pumps Um, You know, it's A lot of interesting stuff going on You should read it Um, Now uh, what I was most interested in was a section where he started giving recipes for making your own mineral water, you know, in in the vein of other famous mineral waters. Like, you know, Seltzer was originally water from a place in Germany. Uh, I forget, Seltzen or something like that, the town. Up until actually uh, like a decade or two ago, you could buy that particular water. Um, and then um, – you know, you know all the famous waters. You can you, you, that's known constituents like a Polanaris, and uh, all these things. And so he gives some of these recipes. So we started uh, experimenting with making our own our own mineral waters. Now I can't, you know, you know me. I can't be normal about this. So you go on Google Books, and it turns out you can get all kinds of books from the uh, late eighteen hundreds that have all of the all of the constituents of all the famous mineral waters at the time because people were obsessed with the medicinal qualities of these various different bottled waters. Um, and there's a couple of main constituents that you want to you want to get, and so rather than trying to actually make any of the recipes, what we did is we, we just got all of the constituents. So uh, we you know we bought calcium chloride. Actually, I have that because we use that when we use uh, alginate. Tastes god awful. It's like yeah. it's it's hideously terrible stuff, but it's in some famous waters in small amounts. Uh, magnesium chloride, right? Magnesium chloride is better known uh, to people as bittern or uh, nigari. It's used to as a tofu coagulant. Um, uh, so we you know we got some of that uh NaCl better known as salt uh is in a lot of things uh calcium cl- uh and then we also got so those are all the chlorides we tasted um you know and by the way you see these uh these waters and they're and they they list you know Calcium chloride, magnesium chloride. like they, Once they go into water, they just turn into ions anyway. So it's not, like, it's not like the calcium knows it belongs to the chloride as opposed to the calcium belonging with the carbonate. So anyway, uh, okay. So then we also used uh, magnesium uh, sulfate, which is Epsom salts, which uh, I'll get into later. You don't want to put too much Epsom salts into your uh, waters. You know, one of the things people used to like about bottled waters uh, was bottled waters that were known as purgative, which is fancy for makes you poop. So you want to you stay away from pounding too much magnesium sulfate water, uh, as I unfortunately found out. Uh, so we have magnesium sulfate, we had calcium sulfate, we had calcium carbonate, uh, sodium bicarbonate, and uh, potassium, uh, potassium bicarbonate, I think, yeah. Uh, anyway, yes, potassium bicarbonate. Uh, and so we basically tasted all of these things uh, separately to see kind of what they tasted like. So. And in different concentrations. So when we were doing all the chlorides, like calcium chloride, magnesium chloride, sodium chloride, we tasted them two ways. One where there were equal amounts of the metal ion in it, right? So equal amounts of calcium versus magnesium versus sodium in the water. And then we tasted it with equal amounts of uh, chlorine, you know, uh, cl- you know, the chloride ion in it. So equal amounts of Cl. And um, what we noticed is what we thought the calcium tastes, calcium chloride tastes like death. Uh, in lower concentrations, it's not a- as bad, but it has a bitterness. Um, then, you know, the salt one obviously tasted like salt. The magnesium one was was sweet and kind of uh, almost had a milky taste, which was strange because the calcium didn't. Um, but uh, when we carbonated then, the very high amount of one, it, it all of a sudden went bitter, something that we didn't have when we were tasting it on its own. Uh, but we were using much higher concentrations than you would actually use in a normal mi- mineral water. Um, then in, in the carbonates, we actually really liked the, uh, the calcium carbonate water, and it really modified the bubbles. Because I only care. By the way, I only care about bubbles. Don't don't give me flat water, which is like spoiled spoiled seltzer water. I hate it. Make, you know, flat water is an abomination. Uh, you want bubbles in your water at all at all times. If you're me, I mean bubbles, 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 bubbles. And when you have the calcium carbonate in, uh, it modifies the bubbles um, and makes it kind of le- less effervescent, I would say, but also kind of you know smoothed it out. So the problem with calcium carbonate is. is it's not very soluble so uh really to make it soluble and not taste chalky we added a little bit of uh we added a little bit of uh phosphoric acid which you know uh, allowed us to dissolve the thing in. and so we made a bunch of this water we ended up liking magnesium sulfate which was sweet and tastes refreshing but makes you poop so you want to watch out for it <laughs> the calcium carbonate tastes like chalk unless you can get uh, get it all in solution the calcium sulfate was not as chalky uh, calcium sulfate is gypsum, which is another thing that they, is used for uh, coagulating tofu. Also, I think will make you poop in large quantities. Uh, Nastasha, you enjoyed the uh, the potassium bicarbonate. Maybe we should work with that a little more. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like the the sodium bicarbonate in little amounts, which is baking soda. Um, so anyway, we're trying combinations of these things, but we're working on our own kind of what we think is like the best tasting blend uh, to to make it uh, kind of a refreshing maybe a little more refined mineral water rather than our normal, like, hypercarbonated nitrous uh, CO2 water, which is also delicious, but anyway, it's something we're working on. Uh, Now, um, anything to add on that, Nastasha? I don't like any of the ones you've made, so. Oh, oh, Jesus Christ. You know, the thing is, like, you don't like it because, here's the thing, she's like, I swear to God, folks, Uh, she was like, I like that, what's in it, and I was like, sodium bicarbonate, She's like, I hate it. Right or wrong? A little bit. Yeah. I mean like you, you are very, you know, easily swayed by you know, knowing what's in it or not. Anyway, uh, so I found something out interesting. I was researching uh, a book called uh, "The Mineral Waters of Europe" from the 1880s uh, by a guy named Tishborn, and I was downloading on Google Books because I love downloading things on Google Books, which is like one of the greatest uh, things in all the, all the world. Is Google Books? All of these public domain books are available. Basically, you can have the state of the art knowledge from uh, anything in the in the late 1800s before, and some of their state of the art knowledge is good, particularly with water. Uh, not in terms of science, but in terms of the actual composition of some these waters soda things like that uh i read you know i do lots of research on it um and anyway so i downloaded this thing by tishborn and, I've, and i had this interesting story which i will relate to you in the next two minutes uh, i came upon this by accident there is this uh there is this thing in england called the tishborn dole right dole like bob dole but you know dole meaning giving things out right and uh and so basically Here's the story. In the 1100s, the uh, Baron Tishborn was a cheap, 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 cheap bastard, right? Cheap bastard. His wife was nice, and his wife, she was on her deathbed, and she said, I don't remember his name, Baron, you know, I really wish you would give, you have all this great farmland, uh, and you don't give any of the proceeds of that farmland to the poor. Please give some of the proceeds of that farmland to the poor. He was like, no, because he's a cheap bastard. And then she said, please. Please, I'm dying. Please, you know, give some of the proceeds to the land to the poor. No, so he says, listen. Finally, because he was a real dick, he says, uh, listen, um, I will, I will donate as proceeds uh, to to the poor all of my land that you can walk around under your own power carrying a torch. Now it was like it was like winter time, and she was dying. Jeez. Right, right. She gets up, gets up, gets a torch, crawls. Around 23 acres of the Tishborne property with a lit torch before she collapses and the torch goes out. Right to this day, that this is all true by the way. This is not like you know horse hockey. Like uh, the, to this day, that area of land is called the Crawl. So as she's dying from doing this, she basically says, "Okay, you are going to give the proceeds of this 23 acres in perpetuity to the villagers here." Or, uh, there's a curse on you, you will have, set the, the house of Tishborn will have seven sons followed by seven daughters, at which point the name will be extinct and the house will fall in ruins. They continue this dole uh, since the 1100s. They had one break in the dole starting in the late uh, 1700s, uh, so it goes from the 1100s to the 17, late 1700s, uh, and they stopped because the, the authorities said that there was a, there was a like a, a disturbance. And then... Well, according to the history, they had seven sons uh, in the Tishborne family, and then they couldn't start producing sons. They started only having daughters, and all the sons were dying uh, soon after they were born. They petitioned to restart the dole. They restart the dole. One son survived that had a son, and the Tishborn name was propagated again. In the In the late 40s, there was flour rationing after the war, and they thought they were going to stop the Tishborn dole again. And people from all over the country of England... Uh, sent flour, their flour rations to the Tishborn so that they could uh, still distribute it out every, uh, every inhabitant of Tishborn uh, is, is allotted one gallon of flour a year and every child is allotted half a gallon a year and they still get t- uh, you know, a couple tons of flour in every year they bless it with holy water, sprinkle it out and dole it out to the, uh, to the people So here's to the Baron of Tishborn And his dole Thank you for listening to <laughs> Cooking Issues I'm Dave Arnold here with Nastasha Lopez